0: There's a, a line from Dingo Kenshi Rinpoche that I really like that's sort of the theme I want to just talk about tonight. He talks about the importance of mingling our mind with the Dharma until it permeates our whole being. So that's what I want to talk about, mingling our mind with the Dharma. He says that the Buddha's teachings are inconceivably extensive and profound, and to achieve an exhaustive intellectual understanding of them would be a rare and remarkable achievement. But that's not enough by itself. Until we also achieve inner realization by actually applying the teachings and mingling them with our minds, whatever knowledge we may gain remains theoretical. Leaving the doctor's prescription by the bedside will not cure the illness. So turn your mind inward and ponder deeply the meaning of the Dharma until it permeates your whole being. I just love that. Ponder the Dharma. or say practice the Dharma. Just explore the Dharma until it permeates our whole being. That's really, I I feel like that's our, uh, I don't know, task isn't the right word. That's what this path is about in retreat, out of retreat, no different. And in a way, we talk about how we mingle our mind with the Dharma. That's, in essence, one way of looking at it is the Eightfold Path, right? That that's just different aspects of how we live our life, all of which, all of our activities, everything we do, from the smallest thing to the biggest thing, can become part of helping us mingle our minds with the Dhamma. Nothing left out. So when we talk about the Eightfold Path, as you know, it begins, really more like a circle, you know, than a path. And so it begins really with right view, wise understanding. Begins and, of course, keeps on increasing, keeps on strengthening that way. So what do we mean by right view, right understanding, the beginning of the path? The first aspect of it is just what Dingo Kensi is saying, the theoretical learning, you know, where we hear something, we read something, we learn something. That's what gets us to even think, oh, there might be another way in this life. Or it piques our interest, gets us to do a little bit of meditation or begin to look at our mind or even think there's another way to live. So is it very important, theoretical information. It actually has a word in Pali, sutta mayapanya. It's like there's three levels of wisdom. And sutta mayapanya, sutta is really what is heard, the teachings. We hear it theoretically. It begins to turn our mind in the direction of dhamma, of wisdom. And then the second level is, is called Chitta mayapanya, but the way we think about things. Or we actually, you know, we've taken in, for example, impermanence. So just hearing all things are impermanent, they arise, you know, all of that. That's theoretical knowledge. And chitta maya panya, or using our mind, our reflections, our contemplation, we, we think about it. And we we can really come to some deep, we really, oh yeah, that really seems true. We can look, we can see, we can contemplate it, and so in a way we're, actually using in our meditation, in our life, we're using the thinking mind. Yes, we really can use the thinking mind in a supportive way. Thinking is one of the six senses. We don't hate it. Let's learn to use it. So in that way, we are contemplating. And it's it's a deeper level of knowledge. We hear it. We contemplate it. We explore it with the mind. But it still isn't really deeply yet. Right view, right understanding. The, the depth of it is the third level, which in, in Pali Bhavana, Maya Pani, or like mental cultivation. But I just want to say insight, right? That moment when we really understand in a different way. So, you know, really insight, basically insight is a shift of perception, I would say. That we right view, I, I love that translation because I, I feel like it's actually literal that we're viewing an experience more accurately than we were before. So take a Nietzsche, which is a good example. We think, we hear it, it makes sense. We think about it, yes, I know that. And we would all probably say, yeah, I really know things are impermanent. Is that, if there's really right view, deep understanding, it automatically leads to the second step of the path, which is uh, intention. Wise intention, what leads to the next steps, our speech and our action. So as I think someone was saying one of these nights, if we really understood, not just in the second, not just in contemplation, but through insight, that everything is impermanent, that impacts our intentions of mind, how we speak, how we act. And so sometimes that's how we find out when we move into the next step of the path of, intention and then into speech and action, that's how we find out whether our understanding was actually (laughs) theoretical or coming from the inside of really seeing clearly. Because we can talk up the wazoo, I really know everything's impermanent. And if you're sitting there having a difficult experience in meditation or in life, I know this is impermanent. I know it's impermanent. If we really know it's impermanent, we don't get filled with aversion. We don't get filled with fear. We don't start running around like a chicken with a head cut off trying to do everything to get rid of this experience because we know it's impermanent, right? (laughs) So when there's really insight, it's like just that shift of perception where we see something that's already here in a different way, right? So the difference between knowing things are impermanent And having or experiencing a moment, or period of time, and it can be in meditation or out of meditation. Like someone was mentioning today, just really seeing moods, emotions, patterns, coming and going, coming and going, coming and going. To the extent that there's nothing to think about, it's just so clear. That's how it is. It's the actual perception. It's not of thought anymore. That's right view in that moment. And that can happen with many, many different things. I'm just using impermanence for an example. And when it's right view in that moment, the intentions that arise, the thoughts, the intentions, the thoughts leading to speech and action aren't going to be that of fear or clinging. When in those moments of real accurate perception, insight, um, deep wisdom for that moment, right view of impermanence, Clinging to stuff doesn't arise. We don't have to talk ourselves out of it. It doesn't arise because it doesn't make any sense. Something's coming. We know we don't have to think about it. We know it's going. Clinging to it is just laughable, you know? Okay, next day, next hour, that's just a fond memory. And it informs our mind stream, right? It informs our understanding. But in the moment of the clear, Um, the clear insight in that moment is as if really quite deeply our minds are mingled with the Dhamma, right? That understanding is what leads to intention, which is how we think about things, how we relate to experience, which leads to how we speak, how we act, the decisions that we make. It's just quite obvious. And that sense, this is how I'm interpreting what Dingo Kenzie says, in that moment, the mind, the heart, the the perception, the right view, the intentions, the speech, the action, it's all mingled. Mingled with the Dhamma, with the truth, using Dhamma in the terms of just the truth of how things are. There's no uh, tension in that way. There's no friction. It's just, oh, that's how it is. And we've all, yes, even you, we've all had many moments of that. And then later, as I said, it's a fond memory. Maybe it gets less and less fond as we struggle and struggle to have that experience again. That's why it's a path. That's why a few moments of really mingling, it gives us a taste. It informs our understanding. That's the beginning, the continuing of the path of right view. But that's why it is an ongoing Path, but we use all aspects of our life to work with intention, how we speak, how we act, how we are in this world. that leads to our willingness to, to use the last stages of the path of, of energy, of mindfulness, of um, collectedness of attention, to pay attention to the other aspects. So the whole path becomes more alive, a template through which we can... Um, kind of use that template of the path to put on the actions of our life to help us see when our understanding, our intentions, our actions, our speech are mingling with the Dharma when they're not. And to kind of help us, because assuming this is something that's a deep motivation for us, to help us further align. So as, as we were saying this morning, kama just means action. And as the Buddha said, the seed, the heart of action is in the intention. So how we understand, how we perceive, that leads to how we think, the intentions in our mind, that leads to how we speak and act. Remember when Sally was talking about the the vipalasas, the distortions of perception? Again, it's the same thing, back with right view, the beginning and the place we keep coming to and deeper and deeper spirals of mingling our hearts, our minds with the Dharma, with the truth. So how we perceive something, we perceive permanence, really, a distortion of perception, we perceive impermanence. We perceive something as being me or mine, we perceive, oh, just arising and passing, no me or mine. That perception, accurate or inaccurate, distorted or accurate, then leads to how we think about the thing. How we think about it hardens into a view, what we believe. And this actually is, is on the level of um, the, the, the deep Dhamma understandings, the views that we don't often even realize we have, the view that things are permanent the view that I'm my body, or these emotions are me, or just that I am somehow separate. We don't go around with like little neon in our mind going, I am now holding this view that this experience is permanent. I mean, if we did, it would be helpful. We'd know why we were suffering. <laughs> but we don't really. We don't just sit there and things are arising and suddenly, oh, view coming up, I am a separate, you know, eternal self coming up, this emotion belongs to me. We don't get that. We don't realize we're holding the view. But the view is just a hardening of the perception, the thought, and that's what leads to intention or action. So it's, you see how it, it all can, can go in through misperception or through perception. But it all is very logical, and we can see how it, how it affects how it colors our decisions, our actions in the world, really who we are, how we show up. So how does, how does our right view show up in the world, or our wrong view? How does our mingling with the Dhamma show up? By how we speak, by how we act, but even more just by who we are. Who we are as we go through life. You don't have to be, you know, Gandhi or someone and do incredible, amazing things, but just seeing who we are, coming to understand more, how we under, coming to understand that, how we perceive and understand, colors the intentions and how this level of intention is really a place that we can include in our mindfulness, awareness, practice, and I, not just on retreat, but also in our life. The subtle, you know, moment-to-moment intentions, like before I lift my hand, okay, it's a little easier to see those in the silence of retreat. But the second step of the path, which is variously translated as wise intention or wise attitude or wise aspiration, can also be looked at in a broader application, this is where we've been getting caught up sometimes in the wording where we sometimes talk about intention, we sometimes talk about motivation, we sometimes talk about aspiration. And so intention, Chetanā, could just be that momentary, you know, about to, that comes before every movement, before every speech. Aspiration... Or a sense of motivation could be a larger, and in in this way that it's talked about in the commentaries under uh, Sampajanya, clear comprehension, put together with mindfulness and clear comprehension. They're often talked about together. The mindfulness of just knowing in the moment what it is. The clear comprehension is the broader context, clearly knowing what you're doing and the context you're doing it in, which, you know, is helpful. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, as someone was saying, you can get really mindful and very concentrated and so, so focused on what you're doing that you're completely oblivious to everything around you. Has anybody noticed that? I'll tell you, this is embarrassing. It was a long time ago, so I can say it. I was <laughs> practicing at IMS many, many years ago. And I was walking through what's this, this, this coat room where you put your coats. And then you walk down a few stairs, and there's a walking room, an upper walking room, and you walk through that room into the meditation hall. So I was walking very slowly and mindfully, noting, lifting, moving, placing, incredibly focused on the sensations, so incredibly focused that I just fell down the stairs without even noticing <laughs> <laughs> they were there. That was embarrassing. <laughs> to. You, you think, hmm, there's something missing. I was <laughs> mindful, you know, <laughs> there's something missing. So that's the clear comprehension piece, right? One aspect of it. And in terms of working with intention, it's um, the aspiration, our larger orientation. Remember, so when, when I talked the other night about um, cultivating or getting in touch with our intention for practice, or the intention of bodhicitta, for example, that's vast, It's not that that's every moment, but it serves as a wider aspiration that we can attune to in moments. And I'll talk more about that in a minute. But just to see how how we understand the situation, how we understand ourselves and the world, and what we see, whether it's conscious or unconscious, what we're holding as our larger purpose, our larger aspiration, is really going to affect the decisions we make, the actions we take. There was an experiment that was talked about in um, the book The Tipping Point, which is really interesting. It has all kinds of little different ways of how we affect one another and motivation and understanding affects things. So this experiment, I don't have all the details, but they called it the Good Samaritan Experiment. And it was with some seminarians. So I guess these were men and women who were training to be ministers of, of some sort. I don't know which kind. So I'm assuming, because they're seminarians, that they went there on purpose, assuming they must be you know, relatively good people, right? With <laughs> some sense of wanting to serve, you know? And so this experiment, I guess they divided them in half. And one half, was they, were, they had to go from one, one place to another on the campus. And one half was given this very urgent mission of why, I I don't remember what it was, but very urgent, it was really impressed on them how important it was, and they had to get to this other place really quickly in order to carry out this very important mission, which, you know, seemed like a good thing to do. So that was one, and the others didn't have that, but they were also told to go in a hurry to that same place, but without the extra purpose, the extra aspiration. But the real experiment was that on the way, why it was called the Good Samaritan experiment, on the way, there was someone that they'd planted who was really in need of assistance. I mean, not dying level, okay, but, but really in strong need of assistance and distraught and asking for help. And by far, the ones who had been given this very urgent mission that they didn't stop to help because they had this other more important urgent thing to do. Whereas the ones who didn't have that bigger goal did stop to help. So it's just to see, you know, it's just interesting to see and how our mind makes priorities and makes choices based on our understanding, consciously or not, of what's really important to us, of what's really important in life. So we see how our view affects our intentions, our intentions affect our decisions how to act, how to speak. So, as we've said before, with right view, panya, wisdom, accurate seeing, our intentions, both larger and smaller, naturally transform. It just happens by itself. But also what I think, I've noticed in myself, and talked about some, I think, begins to happen, is that as our smaller intentions transform, also our larger purpose and aspiration, hopefully, well, I don't think hopefully, I think it begins to change. We may or may not consciously access that, and I've, I'll talk a little about actually doing that because I find it so supportive and consciously helpful in how we meet our life and how we live our life. In, do we live our life in a way that deepens our mingling our minds with the Dhamma? Or do we just kind of respond haphazardly or by habit to circumstances? You know, and sometimes we do both. But it's possible to tune in much more consciously with much more um, caring and intentionality to what really is true for you as a larger aspiration, as a more compelling motivation. What is your view in some way do you really believe is important in life, you know, from your understanding? Can we consciously, now later tomorrow through the days, take some time to really consciously allow that to bubble up in your heart, in your mind. And don't just start with the first little, you know, kind of superficial thought that comes up. It may not be. The first thought that comes up may be the best thought. Sometimes that's true. But sometimes, it's like, oh, well, I just want to do the best I can, you know, being the loser that I am. But sometimes something much more profound and touching can come up. And it can come up by surprise. It can come up, who, me? No, I don't think so. I, no way that's possible for me. You know, don't listen to the habitual disclaimers or the habitual, you know, you can feel it feels different. But if you just give some space, you maybe already know what it is for you. And it can be changing all the time too. But giving some space to to consciously allow that to kind of come from the unconscious into conscious. And it it comes again as an understanding as a view that then again we can consciously turn to call in to in our life work on the level of intention helping us make choices in our speech in our action and what we in our intentions and what we choose to give importance to to pay attention to because that's really intention in a way is where the rubber meets the road you know we, that's, as I said before, we find out what we really understand by how we relate to our own mind and heart, by how we relate to situations in the world, by how we relate to others. This isn't a judgment. I mean, if you're looking at this by judgment, it isn't, and that isn't so helpful. But so you can see how this, really, this step of the Eightfold Path is a kind of a template. uh, about how the Dharma, how reality, how our understanding does begin and continue to permeate our heart, our mind, our whole being. How this mingling the mind with the Dharma, the understanding moves from concept, idea, information to uh, a, a perception, a clear understanding, a view that's based more in reality, and how that view then becomes strong enough to inform our intentions, our actions, and that also leads us to be be more inclined towards the mental cultivation, the other aspects of the path, to give more uh, appreciation and value to the energy, the effort it takes just to pay attention to ourselves. It doesn't take Wrong effort, but it takes some willingness, some interest to show up, to pay attention to what's going on in our mind and heart. The mindfulness, the concentration, and by concentration I just mean the collectedness, the balance, the stability. And it keeps feeding back because as, as our understanding deepens and our intentions begin to purify and we see... The effect this can have on how we show up in life and who we are. This in turn strengthens our understanding and our faith and it just keeps, you know, like I said, spiraling, cycling deeper and deeper and deeper. You start to see, I know you've already seen, how our habits of intention, which can show up just as a thought, intention can just show up as how we think about ourselves, how we react internally to experience. You see right? How they begin to change. How, For instance, the self-judgment or the self-hating or the putting oneself down or the greed isn't always the intention of choice anymore. Sometimes the wisdom comes in and you consciously see, oh, I need to have? No, I don't. You know, and it's a little bit of um, consciously doing it. Other times, you don't even need to consciously refer to your greater aspiration because, oh, it just doesn't arise. I'll give you a little example. I noticed today how the shift of intention based on understanding really can change the whole inner climate. This is this is a med, like a meditation experience because it's so kind of little, little, but it makes a big difference in life. So I was noticing in my mind, I think it was in the sitting this morning, some familiar negative pattern was coming up, probably self-judgment. That's the most familiar. Recognized, felt, all those things. Oh yeah, it's not good. Don't want it. and All that stuff. But there was a tinge of aversion, which I didn't see at first because the, the view that it was being met with wasn't really, I wasn't really seeing it clearly. The view was, this is bad and it shouldn't be here and I don't like it, basically, you know, not good. And so that's, was aversion. So I was sitting there being and then suddenly it just clicked in my mind, came in this this just all happened by itself. Really that my aspiration was more in the moment to and through the day to be able to really be here with people in an open and compassionate way. That just came in. And so in that moment there wasn't aversion or clinging or greed. And also there was clear seeing and in that moment I said, oh so this self-judgment, it's not like it's bad. See, I can feel how that's in the way of compassionate, open presence. And that didn't make me hate it. It made me say, oh, that's the aspiration to be open, compassionate, and present. Oh, I see how self-judging really is a blocking of that. Isn't that interesting? Let me pay more attention to the self-judging. It completely shifted my attitude to it. Not that it has to go away or anything, but more wisdom's there, intelligence, it wants to understand how these things work. Oh, self-judgment, I feel it as an obstacle. Because my motivation is understanding and compassion, it's not like get out the baseball bat and get rid of it because it's in the way. Do you get a sense of what I mean? The the motivation's working kind of behind things. The, The thought could be the same, this isn't a helpful feeling to be having. But the motivation, one was from from um, delusion, I don't like it, it's no good, it's got to go away. The other is from wisdom and compassion based in my larger aspiration. I know it's a little thing, but it felt like a big thing to me, and really it's, the, it's just an example of how that can work for anything in our life. Our habits really begin to switch. And so as we begin to understand this, both on the cushion and off the cushion. We can, as I said, um, put more energy, work more actively, take more care with this the second step of the path, this, this area of wise intention. Not from a should, not from a judgment at all, but again from getting in touch with your greater sense of purpose, as they say, as part of the clear comprehension that's talked about in the commentaries, clear comprehension of your greater sense of purpose, your aspiration. It's sort of not a goal exactly, but what colors, what's our beacon, what's our guidepost in times when we do need to make decisions, what's important, what's not important, what choices do I want to make? So, as I said, if you don't already have a sense of it, or if you haven't really connected with it for a while, I would just suggest at some point to take some time and just make it an open-felt question in your heart. What is really, truly, not what should be most important, not what sounds good or bad or whatever, but just really what is most important in my life, in my life? Because that will become a beacon, a guidepost, a support in times of choice. Not to make yourself crazy. Should I have chocolate ice cream or vanilla ice cream? Which is really, you know, or should I have ice cream at all? No, I shouldn't because my green, you know. But there's times, and you know when they are, if you open up, that we really can tune into this. It's said that in the commentaries that having a sense of your greater sense of purpose collects our dispersed energy. And it's really true. When we have a sense of what's really important, it is like a way of helping us align our actions and our decisions with that instead of just randomly responding. When Sally last night, when she talked about that, that guy Greg Mortensen building schools in Pakistan, He's a great example. His story's a great example of how a sense of purpose really gives us an incredible strength. It's sort of the same way concentration collects all the dispersed mental energy and focuses it on something. Again, it needs to be wise concentration, you know, not incredible striving. But in this same way, our greater sense of purpose does refer to it. It does help us make decisions for all of us We all have that. We wouldn't be here through a whole month retreat. How many, just moments, have you thought, what am I doing here? I wish I could be anywhere, home, somewhere else, but not here in this mind, listening to this crap. I want to be out of here. (laughs) Is there anyone who hasn't had any moment like that, the whole retreat? (laughs) Yeah there's some greater sense of purpose. Maybe it's just shame, you know. (laughs) So that might be it. It's helpful to know. Don't kid ourselves. (laughs) Sometimes, you know, public uh, um, group shame is all that keeps us in a sitting or keeps us at a retreat. Hopefully we transcend that and come to appreciate that it was all for a greater purpose. But really, I'm kind of joking, kind of not. But hopefully that's not the only reason you're here. You didn't come here out of shame, hopefully. And so, so you see what I mean, that the sense of purpose. If this is the first time for you, you maybe never thought you could seriously do this for a month. Remember when you went to your first retreat, you thought, who could do this for two days or 10 days? And now maybe you're thinking some of you are here for two months. Some of you have already done lots of long retreats. And the rest of you who are leaving, I know, are saying, oh, I so wish that I had another month here. (laughs) Let me sign up for next year. But that sense of greater sense of purpose, you see what I mean? We, we, We call on that all the time. And sometimes that's all we can call on. We don't have the clear seeing, this really difficult thing is impermanent. I know it. I can sink into it. Sometimes we can't access that. But sometimes we can access just this sense of purpose I don't feel like I'm doing the meditation. I don't feel like I'm getting anywhere, but somehow I know and trust this is really what's important to me, whether it's understanding or developing compassion or whatever it is for you. And there's some trust that this is helpful, so you keep doing it. We all have this really strongly, and we can call on it even more. It's like that guy Greg Mortenson. He had incredible resolution, incredible resolve, we all have the paramis, Sally talked about, you know, in differing strengths at different times. But calling on this sense of purpose is really, I have found it so helpful. Sometimes I forget about it, you know, and then it'll come up when I'm thinking, well, should I do this? I don't want to go teach that retreat. I just want to take a vacation. And you know, Sometimes you need a vacation. Sometimes a vacation is what's going to, you know, help you balance and relax in order to keep on serving, you know. It's not a sense of what's right or wrong in that moment. It's at the big picture. So I remember when I first thought of this and then I forgot about it. And somewhere later, out of nowhere came up this idea, you know, I just want to love and serve the Dharma. And I thought, who, me? I don't think so. You know, really that immediate dismissal. But it kind of came up from somewhere else. You know how that is. These insights, these deep intuitions, they come up and you really can't ignore them without trying awfully hard. So I'd advise you don't ignore it. Don't buy into all the stupid habitual stuff your mind says, and let yourself resonate with it. Let yourself feel whatever it is. It doesn't have to be any particular thing. Let it give you strength. Let it give you courage. Let it give you inspiration to really do things we never thought we could do. And and to go in a direction, we never really know what's going to happen. I mean, for me, if I thought 10 years ago what I'd be doing now, or 20 years ago, or when I made different choices, did I know where they were going to end up? No way. No clue, you know? In fact, that's one of my favorite favorite things I say to myself all the time. I don't have a clue. It's really helpful. I just have no clue. You let go trying to have a clue. And then you just make the best decision you can, based on the clearest intention, based on the real wisdom that you can access, the wisdom of heart, the kindness of mind. We don't know where it's going to go. So we just do the clearest intention we can. Align with your reference point, your deep motivation. In terms of this, and in terms of living our life from this and aligning over and over with what's really our deepest purpose and trying as well as we can to remember to access our purest understanding, our kindest, most accurate intentions, mingling our mind and heart with the dharma, it's minimally, minimally, A lifelong task. That's the least it is. If we have any, you know, sense of belief that maybe it goes more than one life, well, this mingling our hearts and minds with the Dhamma, with the truth, it just seems endless and opening, but not endless in a depressive way, (laughs) because it's endless anyway. So it might as well be endless and opening to the truth rather than endless and just ping-pong and back and forth of greed, hatred, delusion, liking, disliking, not liking, going this way because I want it, going that way because I don't want it. What kind of a life is that? That's what we call samsara. Ping-pong, ping-pong, over and over, endless. So it feels like that sometimes, huh? But when it's really this opening to the de- how How deep can compassion get? How wide can wisdom get? How vast is impermanence? How big is emptiness? It's endless. There's always more to see. How subtle is the mind? What's the nature of consciousness? You think you're going to answer that with one talk by Guy? I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> two talks two talks <laughs> I'm not implying he was trying to answer it. He was just planning the questions. See, I'm serious about that. I wasn't at all imputing guy, but notice how our minds go. Did I get it? Let me okay write it down., it, yeah. no it's opening into endless questions, and that's exciting. If you don't have a clue and you don't need a clue, it's really exciting. Maybe that's my purpose now, (laughs) just not to need a clue. That's not, I know that might not be too inspiring, but (laughs) the sense of the vastness, the subtlety, the beauty, that there's always deeper we go in mingling our hearts and minds with the truth. That's lovely. So you don't have to feel like, well, this is my, my goal, my deep intention. I haven't done it yet. And I'm, you know, I'm already 72 years old. I've already sat three three-month retreats. You know, what's the problem? When we just, just throw that out the window, it's like, just right now. What's in the mind in the heart? What intentions are rising in the mind and the heart? Why am I saying and doing what I'm saying and doing? Not that's not a judging question. that's really interested, like us. Oh, how does self-judging work in the mind right now? It's interested. It just wants to see and you know. With so much trust, that kind of interest has so much trust, that wisdom will do the work itself. We don't have to figure it out. Just get interested. Meet what's happening and trust that what right view arises because it's the way things are. You don't have to really make it be that way. It is already. If we just, when our, you know, our tightness and holding and views, when they're not so in the way, the way things are reveals itself. Naturally, the intention purifies. Naturally, our speech and action starts to reflect that. Who we are in the world starts to reflect that. You can't stop that. But we can trust it, that wisdom really does that work. This is where we use, though, the, the energy, the mindfulness, the samadhi, the collectedness, to keep noticing, to keep paying attention. So we have some, some choice there, some energy, some effort, but just to pay attention, just to pay attention, and really trusting the wisdom opens by itself. And the manifestation, as we've talked about, of, of compassion or of equanimity or of mudita or of metta, that shows up by itself as well. So, one other aspect that I want to, I mean, there's millions of aspects one could talk about. The other one I want to talk about tonight, in terms of this, this path we're on of mingling our hearts and minds. With the truth. <laughs> There's the clear comprehension of purpose, the Eightfold Path, but also to realize it's, first I was just saying how we can totally trust it. On the other hand, it's difficult. It's hard. As the Buddha said, you know, practicing the Dhamma is, or his teachings, is like swimming upstream against the main current of the culture. Same back then, same now, you know. And so s- it's difficult, it's hard to, we'll have our perceptions, we'll really have some, some wise understanding, some wise views, some purified intentions, we act from kindness, from understanding, but it's not always met by the rest of the culture, it doesn't necessarily stand up and cheer. You know, and say, yes, I'm so glad that you're you're renouncing that greed. Yes, I'm so glad that you've stopped acting in that way. You know, it doesn't necessarily happen. So what's really helpful is this, that I want to talk about now, is this sense of what the Buddha called Kalyanamitta, or spiritual friend, of really realizing, we can talk about refuge in the Sangha, but the sense of realizing that we don't have to do this path alone. We don't, we aren't on it alone. Here we are all together and there's many other beings, and I'm not even talking about Buddha Dharma here, but just that there's many beings here and in the world who are, you know, committed to understanding, to compassion, to honesty, to generosity, to all the the aspects of how we are in the world that Sally talked about last night, including wisdom, and to really tune into the fact of how much we affect each other in both wholesomeness and unwholesomeness, that basically who we are and who other people are is is contagious in a way, you know? We catch stuff from each other. And so um, part of... Being on this path is being able to tune into both really wise, awakened beings, but aspects in each of us for inspiration. One of the reasons we all tell stories about different people that inspire us or have done wonderful things or come to awakening is because, for me, when I read about or think about any of these people, that story I told about James Lawson the other night, the... the. It brings up such a deep sense of, of love, of courage, of inspiration, you know, a kind of a piti, a kind of a joy. That's really important. You see how somebody can only inspire us because it awakens those qualities in ourself. So touching into inspiration, really important, but then not leaving it as all the other person and I'm so unworthy can only be inspiring because those qualities are touched and awakened in ourself. So one of the reasons we talk about all these people is that look for that in life, whether it's teachers, whether it's reading, whether it's listening to Dhamma talks, whether it's getting together with other people, articles in newspapers. I mean, I just love reading about anybody like that. But it works the other way too. Why is like swimming upstream? I mean, just the power of the media is appalling to me. And the power of affecting the mind. I remember so long ago when there was, when the, um, some of you will remember, when uh, Iran went through their revolution and they kept, they had the American embassy people hostages and went on for 400 and something days. I remember doing part of that time, but not all of that time. I was somewhere where I was, I was watching the news on TV every night which I, I often didn't do. And the news, I... Okay, this is a totally personal judgment, but I just find that the TV news in this country is really kind of amps things up. It's really kind of sensationalist, and so plays on emotions and those little sound bites. It doesn't have much subtlety. So by the end of a, two or three weeks of that, listening to the news every night, absolutely, I was getting terror-filled. I was convinced World War III was about to start, I was really affecting my mind states and my judgments and how I thought and felt about things. And when I stopped watching the news, that level of fear and intensity also diminished. And I could, like, read the paper. I mean, I could stay in touch with the news, but without that amount of bombardment. And I just saw, and I see now how much what we hear and see can affect if we're not not aware, if we're not mindful how it affects how we think about things, our our mind, our heart. So both wholesome and unwholesome happens that way. I remember reading about there's a big nightclub fire in Rhode Island a few years ago, and it turned out a lot of people died in it. And I read sometime later that somebody who, who hadn't died said at first everyone was kind of filing out, you know, quickly, but filing out orderly, and then this person said a couple of people really panicked and their fear and their panic was so immediately contagious that everyone panicked. And the reason people died is because they panicked and were trampled and people couldn't get out the doors. And how contagious that fear is, that panic is. So just kind of seeing that. But then seeing that who we are in a wholesome sense, in a beautiful sense, is equally contagious. And so realizing, in terms of Kalyanamitta, in terms of inspiration, we both need to tune in to receive this inspiration from others, but also who we are and how we live our lives, how we live our understanding. You're Kalyanamitta, often you're the one inspiring others, and you may not even know it, but it's just as contagious. And it doesn't have to be, as I said, you don't have to be Gandhi out there doing big things, but just in the middle of a conversation. Like I remember a few years ago having a conversation with a very wise friend, but for whatever reason she was in a mood and was just really kind of sniping and putting down someone, a mutual friend. And I just happened to have a moment of clarity. I don't <laughs> claim I always do in conversations. It's so easy, isn't it, to fall into that. Yeah, and then they do do da 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 da, da. And then you feel kind of dirty and kind of bad later. But, but for some reason, she was doing it, and I was quite. and then suddenly I realized. And my moment of clarity was not to say, what are you doing? Don't you know better? That's not really so helpful. But I just, I just slipped in something really positive about this person in a nice way. So yeah, and she blah, blah. That's all I had to do, because it was a very wise friend. As soon as I did that, it stopped the whole flow. She just completely stopped and turned around and we went into a more wholesome and kind way of speaking. Just, it doesn't take much. It just takes a clarity, our understanding what we're doing, what's being fed in my mind and heart, what's being starved, and just to offer, just to be that wholesomeness, that goodness, that kindness, not with any result needed, but just being that, you being the Kalyana Mitta, the spiritual friend to others at that point. And I really feel like, you know, we can't wait till we're Arhants or we're St. Francis or we're Gandhi or Dr. Martin Luther King. We've got to do lots of stupid stuff. Maybe you guys aren't, but I find I do lots of stupid stuff and lots of stuff from ignorance and from, you know, not such helpful motivation. But more and more and more, we have going to do a lot of kind, loving, wise intention, a lot of generosity, a lot of wholesomeness. Shine that out. I really feel like it's our, our duty. Buddha Dasa used to say, Dhamma is duty. Duty is Dhamma. I feel it's our Dhamma duty not to kind of shrink away and say, well, I'm not good enough yet to say anything or do anything. I don't mean you have to stand up and proclaim the Dharma in Hyde Park, you know, on a box. I'm, just by honoring your deepest motivation, tuning into it and being who you are. And they say, let your light shine, really seeing how contagious it is. Sally was talking about the Paramis last night, talking about them really seeing how contagious those are. Generosity, for example. I really learned that from the times I go to Burma, which is about once a year in the last few years. Sure, there's plenty of really horrific stuff that goes on there in Burma, no question. But there's some way that meta and generosity in a very natural way is, is a part of many of the people in the culture, along with other stuff. I'm not trying to say it's, you know, all magic, but there's some way it's there and it slips up on you. And I know it's not just me. And in the beginning, you don't kind of notice. Oh, isn't that person nice? Oh, isn't that person nice? And after a while, I go, isn't that taxi driver nice? Isn't that lady in the store nice? Oh, they're so generous, you know? And, and a friend just told me, they came back from a couple of weeks, their first time in Burma, saying, my heart's so full. This is what happens. You come back, your heart's so full. You can't pinpoint what it was. It's not like one amazing person, but generosity of spirit, generosity with things, generosity of kindness, just being so happy to see you and whoever if you go to see a friend and you bring along someone they've never met they're always welcome there's never this kind of inclusion exclusion kind of thing i've never run into it and whenever i come back no matter what's been going on i'm happier i'm happy from that generosity and it can that happiness spills out of me and touches other people and whenever i talk like this i can see in the room people who've experienced that because their faces light up. That's the contagious, and it doesn't have to be Burma. I'm just using that for an example. Someone told me the other day about something some, one of us said reminded them of a really generous act they've done, and it brought so much joy. Okay, don't sit on that. It, you know, I mean, you don't go around and say, I'm the generous person of the ages, appreciate me. I don't mean that. <laughs> but like Sally said, feel the joy, but let it shine out. Because when you're generous and you're doing it from happiness, that's contagious and it spreads. This other friend of mine, she came back again from Burma and said, I was just so filled. I just wanted to spread it to the people that I met. I just wanted to keep that cycle going, not in a conscious way, but it just spills over. It's a beautiful thing. I find it that immediacy of it not so accessible in our culture, although we're all really generous. But there's some way. We don't let the contagion of it out, or we don't appreciate it. So I just hope that you can let that in, let that out, not just generosity, with metta, with compassion, with sila, with non harming conduct, you know? Seeing how the Buddha often talked about the power of as I said, good friends, the power of our companions, how much it's catching. So when we're when we're with people, a friend of mine was on a Oh, she was sitting for several months. And she told me she'd noticed when she went back from a long retreat that when she was pe- with people who they were you know, relatively pure, they acted, uh, they had pretty good sila, pretty wholesome actions, they didn't do a lot of negative stuff. She felt it, drew that out of herself. She felt more inclined to that kind of purity of behavior, that appreciation, that subtlety, that honesty. But when she hung out with people that weren't, that their behavior was a little more muddled, or a little less honest, or uh, just a little more distracted—not evil or bad, but just kind of, you know, just kind of choosing things that lead to confusion and distraction—she would find that that would also kind of color her consciousness, and she would more easily get drawn into confusion and distraction. So this isn't a judgment; it's just noticing how we affect and affect each other. So sometimes we're the kind of muddled one, and we can kind of look for someone or friends who inspire us and can kind of pull us in their wake a little bit, remind us, oh, yes, that's important to me. Other times we're going to be the clearer, the loving, the honest one. And not, again, not with a self-righteousness, but just as a modeling, as a sharing, as a gift to your friends in the world. No, I don't think I want to do that right now. Just, you don't even say it, but in your heart, you know, I just don't want to engage in putting this person down right now. You know? Let's go out drinking. No, maybe let's not go out drinking, you know? You don't have to say, you're so bad, you're so... But no, let's not do that. Let's do this other thing, you know? and There's just a way that who you are, it comes from your right view, from your understanding. It begins to color your choices, your actions, and that, again, feeds back into purifying your heart and mind more and more. It's that we begin to, and I'm sure you've seen that over the years of your, your path, how we appreciate the wholesome more and more. I mean, until we even had moments of experiencing, we didn't even know how kind of murky it feels when our mind's clouded with wanting or clouded with aversion or confusion or doubt. And when we have those moments where it's not there, and it's just that, no, no fancy great things going on, because then we get into wanting again. But many people have said, just you know, moments of quiet, of purity, nothing special going on, or calm, or not. And the mind, the heart just feels like it's getting cleaned a little bit. I get that feeling sometimes, like you've got Windex, and it's just kind of getting clearer and clearer, getting washed out in a nice way. And it's like, that's nice. We incline towards it a little more. We didn't even know before that was possible. And that just, again, our heart, our mind, is mingling more deeply with the Dhamma just by itself. Just because wholesomeness, compassion, wisdom, beauty, they naturally call us, inspire us. You know, wisdom calls itself. Beauty, compassion calls itself. Again, we can really trust that if we're willing to let it in. And just who we are is enough. I heard an interview with Desmond Tutu. You know, He is the archbishop in South Africa who was part of the whole reconciliation process after apartheid ended. And he had been giving a talk in Boston. This was last fall. And I, I just heard this little snippet of it where he was talking to some students from really rough, I guess like high school or a little bit older young men from a really rough area of Boston, you know, where there's a lot of crime, a lot of guns and weapons, a lot of drugs. And he was telling them, he was saying, you know, we're not born hating, we learn to hate. He's saying really goodness, love, wisdom, that's our truer nature. We learn to hate. And one of the students said, how can you tell us, how can you, in the midst of a culture of violence, where we grow up with violence, we need to protect ourselves, how can we learn to love? And he said, and this is what I heard, he said this with so much force and emphasis, you could just, I could just imagine him really talking right to these young men. He said, really with so much emphasis, you, and I know who he was talking right to them. you can make a difference. And he went, you, 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 just like you are, One person can make a big difference. Start with you right now. It's powerful. Saying, not me, I'm not good enough, that's delusion. You, again, that's the delusion that I'm not good enough is the delusion of small, separate self. You can make a difference. When you shine forth, when you let the truth shine forth in whatever way it manifests in your mind, in your body, in your personality, just let it manifest. You can't make it manifest, but we can allow it to when it comes up. Don't shut it down with our little thoughts of, not me, I'm not good enough, blah, 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 blah. Let it come out, because it's nothing to do with you, really. We're only getting in the way me, 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 getting in the way. So I just want to end with something that has been, again, a little, little practice that's been inspiring to me, again from Dingo Kensy, talking about, and I'm just giving you a taste of it because it's a whole huge Tibetan practice that I haven't done. I don't have the right to, to be teaching it at all. So I'm just giving you a snippet of it that's been inspiring to me. He talks about Chen who's the Bodhisattva of Compassion. just manifesting, embodies the great compassion of the Buddha, inseparable from the vast wisdom, right? So, bodhisattva of compassion. And he talks about empowerment where, and this is from him, through the blessing of Chenrizi's body, you perceive the whole universe as Chenrizi. You perceive all matter as Chenrizi's Buddha field. Through the blessing of Chenrizi's speech, You perceive all the sounds in the universe, the sounds of water, fire, wind, the cries of animals, human voices. Any sound is the reverberation of Chenrizi's own voice, the voice of compassion. Through the blessing of Chenrizi's mind, you experience all thoughts as the display of awareness, as Chenrizi's own mind. So through these blessings of Chenrizi's body, speech, and mind together, you realize that in reality, Body, speech, and mind are not three separate entities, but are Chinrisi's one nature, voidness and compassion, inseparable. Play with that. Imagine every thought is just the manifestation of Chinrizi's mind. Every thought, every sound, every sight is just Chenrezig speaking or manifesting in form or thinking making sound, it's a lot harder to get upset at things. It really, I was playing with this on a self-retreat once, and it was really interesting, just all thoughts, all experiences, just the manifestation of Chenrizi, compassion and emptiness, you know, all here teaching me in a way. It really changes something. The union of compassion and emptiness So then, as Dingo says, what you might formerly have perceived as evil and obstructive forces, you then see as manifestations of the bodhisattva of compassion, through which you strengthen loving kindness and compassion. And in this way, suffering fades away, and the negative forces, obstacles, and difficulties actually serve you to make progress in your path. Let's end with this from Nisargadatta. Once you can say with confidence, born from direct experience, I am the world, the world is myself, you are free from desire and fear on the one hand and become totally responsible for the world on the other. The senseless sorrow of humankind becomes your sole concern. Let's just sit quietly for a moment. From rooming, on a day when the wind is perfect, the sail just needs to open, and the world is full of beauty. Today is such a day. Thank you for your attention. And just one logistical announcement. Please, tomorrow, would you all come to the 815 sitting? I know a lot of you don't, but please, all of you come, just because we have to, you know, give information about organizing the day. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.